Jesus said, what? What does God look like? Um, baby Jesus and Jesus. That is extra large. With long hair. He has a crown. Um, I think he wears a long white robe and sandals. And um, he has a big long brown beard. And um, he's really nice. I think John, he wears a long robe that's blue, brown sandals, a black short beard. Mm. That's all. I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> looks like anything, but he just still don't want to know. Animal. Big and huge. He has a beard. Just like us. But bigger and stronger. Uh, he has a skirt. And he has a white shirt. Wait, is there a shirt? And, um, he... Um, has brown hair and a beard. Mm. He has a white dress, a brown beard, brown hair. He has a smile on his face, blue eyes, and he has a little scadger, a purple scadger on his chest. Bye. So one of the things that you maybe don't realize that you're doing that we get to hear about on, uh, on this side of, of things is when you check in on Facebook or on YouTube, wherever you're watching, and you, and you let people know that you're there and, and you say, hey, here's where we're watching from, you're not just doing church with us on Sunday morning. You are being the church with us. That's why I say we are the Open Door Christian Church. Uh, we might be pastors and worship leaders, but you know, you are the church. And so when you do that, you need to realize how encouraging that is for other people when we're sheltering at home. And uh, just how awesome it is to know that we're not alone because it feels these days like we're kind of stuck in our own little bubbles. And so thank you for doing that. Just for everybody else that's out there, thank you for doing that. Speaking of uh, where, where you all might be from, I, I like to travel. Uh, where traveling takes you all kinds of places. It, it happens in all kinds of simple ways and, and more elaborate ways. I don't really like the traveling part, the getting there part. I, I like the being there part. Uh, and I've had the opportunity over the last couple of years to go to London and to spend some, some really good quality time in the city of London, in the countryside and the smaller cities around it. And there's some things that I've learned. They, they talk the same way relatively that we do. We all speak English. They talk it a little bit differently than we do. Uh, but they've got some, some curiosities maybe that aren't the same as in America. Uh, one of them, for example, is they drive on the wrong side of the road. Well, it's the right side of the road for them, but for us, it's literally the wrong side. They drive on the left side of the road. Because of that, I'm just smart enough to know that I'm not probably good enough to handle that without totaling out my rental car. So what Deidre and I have done instead is we've gotten to know public transportation really well. 
And so this morning, I, I've got my, my map of the London Underground mug. I've got my London double-decker bu- uh, bus socks. And uh, there's something else that they have there. This thing, the map here, the thing that's called the tube, it's their underground. It's a a mix between a a train and a subway because sometimes it's above ground and sometimes it's underground. But everywhere that you go, every time there's a station, and they do a great job of putting them all over town so you're a walking distance from just about anything you might want to see. There's a sign and a statement that gets made. You hear it over the loudspeaker when the, when the tube comes up to you and when you're about to get off. And the message is very simply this. We've got a slide of it so you can see what I'm talking about. The message is, mind the gap. And what they say is, mind the gap between the car and the platform. And, and the whole idea is that phrase on the tube reminds us that we have to be mindful. We've got to pay attention and not forget about the gap that exists between the underground car that we get into and the platform that we stand on. Because there's a space. There's a, there's a, a foot or a foot and a half, depending on where you are. And if you aren't cautious, you might step into that space or you might drop something that you're carrying into that space, and it'll drop about four feet down under the tracks, and the odds are you're never going to see it again. So having spent time there over a couple of different uh, vacations, very quickly you realize in the mind of a preacher, of course, this is a sermon illustration. And so that's what that is today. And as we're talking about the Beatitudes and the crowd that gathers and the, and the Sermon on the Mount that follows from Jesus... We also have to mind the gap. We've got to mind the gap between the world that we live in, where it's easy to assume that we know and understand everything that we need to know and understand, and the world and the person that Jesus actually calls us to be. There's a gap there. There's a mind the gap. And so that that idea of those words are really helpful to keep in mind when we consider Jesus talking to His disciples... And in the sight of them is this growing crowd coming up this hillside that that is the group of people. And and Jesus is talking to the disciples and saying, mind the gap. I've got you guys over here, but be aware that what we're talking about is that growing crowd of people over there. It's important for you and I because we also are commanded by Jesus to be disciples, to make a difference in the world. Uh, One of the things that we're called to do is to be aware of that difference the gap, the divide between who we're called to be as Christians and who we were as people before we were Christians and and the world around us that doesn't believe. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it it helps us to understand how we span that gap, uh, the gap of the world that we live in and in the new creation that we are in Jesus. The Bible talks about us when when we become saved, when, when Jesus and His death and resurrection for us become personal because we put our life and hope and trust in Him and salvation becomes real and suddenly eternity takes on a, on a very new perspective for us that very literally the Holy Spirit creates in us a new creation. And literally what He's talking about is we're no longer a part of the crowd that we came out of. We are now brought into a new group of people, believers, Christians, disciples in Jesus. And we're called to a higher standard than the crowd. And and so really that mind the gap, as Jesus is talking to the disciples about the Beatitudes, the how to be attitudes, because being a Christian isn't an easy thing. It is so significant that we remember this growing crowd that's coming to see the miracle worker and they're coming to see what Jesus is going to do next. But they are the world that the disciples came out of 
and the world that Jesus is sending them back into. And as a Christian, these Beatitudes are so important for you because you too, as a new creation, come out of that world but are now being sent as a disciple back into that world. He's pointing out the gap that exists between the heavenly point of view that we take on as a Christian that is no longer the same as the prideful earthly view that we have before we become a Christian. The gap between the crowd and the disciples, the gap between the world and who we're called to be now is only filled by the cross. It's by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Were it not for that, we'd never escape the crowd. We would live as sinners in a sinful life, but because of what Jesus has done, not only does our eternity change, but our life here and now changes. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to these disciples. So I want to give you a visual reminder. I showed you a couple pictures last week. Well, now I'm going to give you a little bit of a different perspective. The first one is from the top of this hill called Eremos Topos. And this is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's looking out. And what you're seeing is looking all the way down to the south end of the Sea of Galilee, where the River Jordan runs out and goes to the south. This is this area that Jesus spent so much of His ministry. If you have a chance, take some time and just look at a map of what the Upper Galilee area looked like in Jesus' day. You're going to recognize the name of so many small towns and villages. And the thing is, Jesus got to all of them on foot. But when He wanted to get away, when He wanted a quiet place, when He wanted to get to a solitary place, this place called Eremos Topos, this, this flat spot on a hill that's only about a hundred yards from the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was able to go and to get away from the crowd because it was a little bit of a distance between towns on either side. This is where He took His disciples when He wanted to share with them the Beatitudes. But while He wanted to get away, the crowds didn't want to let Him. And so this next photo now is where Jesus and the disciples would have been standing, looking off a little bit to the east. And what you see is this lightly sloping area with rocks. And, and if you see it from the bottom, it almost looks like a natural amphitheater. And so where this woman is standing, I imagine back in the day, Jesus was standing facing the disciples, and the disciples were looking at this crowd wondering, what's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do now? What's next? We're up here because we wanted to get away. He's trying to have this time with us. But if you can imagine all of that brown behind this woman being filled with thousands of people, Jesus was able to stand up here in the higher point and in a normal speaking voice, because we've tried it when we were there, in a normal speaking voice, your voice carries so far. And so He's preparing them not just to go back in to do ministry in the crowd, He's preparing them for what's going to happen when they turn around and they go back and address the crowd. And so now as we look at these verses today, as we look at the Beatitudes, it's important that we remember that there's, there's a few different kinds of Scripture. Some of them are where God has inspired other people to, to share His words, where we know that it's God's Word, but it isn't necessarily God speaking. It's, a, it's another writer speaking for God. And then we've got some instances where God speaks, and the Bible makes that clear. And then there's some language where it isn't necessarily God speaking, but people are speaking a message for God. And that, that's an awful lot of the Scripture. And then there's a small part of it in the New Testament that kind of stands alone because they're the words of Jesus. They're words that Jesus spoke and someone recorded and then made it into what became a gospel and now they're recorded in the Bible. And, and you know, even if you've never really paid attention to them before, 
As you go forward from today, I hope you really pay attention to those words that are spoken by Jesus. They're spoken directly by Him for us to understand. They're they're straight out of His mind, straight out of His mouth, straight from His heart. So when we say that we're, we're going to look at God's Word today, we are literally going to look at the words of God. Today, uh, the Beatitudes, we talked about them last week as the blessed are statements because they all start that way. Blessed are. It, it was a fairly common form that people wrote and spoke with in Jesus' day. And so he was just letting the people know that he understood how they listened and how they learned. And so he wasn't trying to change things up on them and, and confuse them. He, he was speaking to his disciples in a way that they understood. Blessed are was a, was a phrase that was made. But I want you to understand them the way that a first century person would have as they gathered on this hill on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and there's Jesus speaking. What what they would have heard when he said blessed, the, the Greek word, the way that it better translates really isn't even blessed are. It's really fully satisfied will be. Fully satisfied. Jesus talks so often that, that He is the bread of life and, and that um, He is living water and that there's all these examples of things that we're not going to... He, he says that uh, anybody who, who comes to know Me, you'll never be thirsty again. And, and in a relationship with Jesus, we're fully satisfied. And so when He says, blessed are, maybe you can, in your mind, what you can hear is, I will be fully satisfied when... And most of these Beatitudes, and we're getting to the ones now that are really, really tough... They're not something you're going to go chase down an opportunity to experience. They're the kind of thing that you get thrown into the situation and whatever your relationship with Jesus is, whatever you're really made of, that's what's going to come out. And so as you hear these today, give yourself the opportunity to say, who would I be and how would I respond? If this situation happened to me, what would I do? So if you've got your Bibles, please open Matthew 5. We're going to go in the, uh, start in verse 7 because we left off at verse 6 last week. Verse 7, I'm going to just read them through. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If that's a little bit different than the Bible you're reading, that happens to be the ESV. But whatever you're reading is going to be awful similar. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Fully satisfied are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's pretty important that we understand who the merciful are. It isn't just being nice to people. That's not what Jesus was talking about. We should be nice, yes. But really what he's saying is, blessed are those who have a heart for those who are suffering and in misery. Literally, one who takes the heartache and the sadness and the pain and the suffering upon themselves. It isn't just being kind. It's more than being empathetic. It's more than just saying, hey, I understand. It's more than saying, I'll pray for you. It's entering in to the darkest places that people live. And that's not a fun thing to do. It's where you... You don't just listen to misery where we enter into the suffering with people and we share in whatever they're going through. In the original Greek, it means to have compassion and to have action. 
It isn't just to do one thing and to listen. It's to be compassionate and to listen and and to try to somehow understand, to share in it with them, but then to do something. It means more than just telling somebody who's hurting that you'll pray for them. And and let's be honest, in the church, we've overused that one. I'll pray for you. You know what? Stop telling people you're going to pray for them and stop and pray for them for crying out loud. It makes me feel good when someone says, I'll pray for you. That's great. But you know what really does my heart good? When someone says, can I pray for you right now? And you know what? I will be willing to... I'm not going to bet. I'm not going to say that. But I'd be willing to believe that even if you went to someone these days who wasn't a believer, but you knew they were going through something that was a struggle, and if you if you did this, if, if you said, you know, let me enter in a little bit and just talk to them and hear from them, and then say, can I pray for you right now? I would be shocked if they said no. And the reason that I would be shocked is because God is using in these times of chaos and turmoil and uncertainty, and people are being open to God in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Don't tell people that you're going to pray for them. Stop and enter into what they're, they're going through. Sit down, listen, maybe weep with them for a bit. But actually enter into that misery with them and then pray with them. Right there, right now, not later. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure here implies without evil. It implies truly a a pure heart that doesn't have other motives, that isn't worried about what in the situation can I benefit from. Because, man, we see so much of that in our world. We see it in politics, and we see it in churches, and we, we, we see it all over the place. Pure in heart means a a heart that has no evil, that has no malice, that that isn't worried about what what I'm going to get out of a situation, but rather that just truly is pure, for they shall see God. This comes after those earlier Beatitudes. And it's important because we've learned in the ones before this that really as we start to live these out and to practice them, our heart and, and our thinking goes through a continual cleansing in our relationship with God. And what we realize is that we're becoming a different person. We asked the kids in that video, what does God look like? And, and did you notice how quick their responses were? They were confident. I mean, they had descriptions, not one of which, by the way, included God as bald. So I'm not sure about that. But they had these great descriptions of who God was, what God looked like. And and then there was the one answer that said, God looks just like us, only bigger and stronger. You know what? The Bible says that we're created in God's image, but I need a God that's bigger and stronger than me. I need a God that's not going to fumble and fault. I need a God that isn't going to not keep promises. I need to know God is bigger and stronger than me. And I believe that you do too. And we are created in God's image. And the more that we see God in us, the more our heart is going to become pure. It, it, that doesn't mean that, that we're right in everything we do because we think it, that that makes it good. That, that's not what I'm saying. But the more that we see God and the more that we seek God, the more our heart is going to become pure. Verse 9 says, Blessed for the pe- are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Truly satisfied are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. To be a peacemaker does not mean you have to be passive. That doesn't mean you give up and you don't have an opinion. Let's look at what Paul says. 2 Corinthians, if you want to look this up. 2 Corinthians five seventeen and 18. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As Jesus is talking to the disciples, the old creation in that crowd is just off in the distance on the hillside and they're gathering and the numbers are increasing. But if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. 
All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I hear so much of people who talk about their testimony as though they did something right. You know what? You didn't. God did something great in you. If you have a God story in your life, if, if Jesus has become real as your Lord and as your Savior, and if you now know salvation in a personal way, it's because of what God did for you. It isn't because of the horrible thing you did before and the great decision that you made. It's God's story in your life. And as Christians, we are to be peacemakers in a world that is not full of peace. Our life, the Bible says, should be about the ministry of reconciliation. We don't boast about where we've come from. We don't boast about how bad we were and who we are now. Instead, we recognize that it is God who has brought us from who we were in the old creation to who we are as a new creation. And then God gives us this ministry of reconciliation. He calls us to be peacemakers, Jesus says. Peacemakers in a world of conflict. If you look at what Jesus did, He was constantly making peace. He was honest with people. He, 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 he uh, loved them. He never humiliated or embarrassed anyone. But you know what? His life was a ministry of reconciliation all the way to the cross. And so where's the place to begin? You want to be a peacemaker. You want to think about how do you do that? Here's my my suggestion for you. Begin in the two most difficult places of all. The two most difficult places to be about the ministry of reconciliation and to be a peacemaker in our world are in your home, in the relationships with your spouse, your children, your families, and in the church. Because in those two places, we feel more than anywhere else that we've got a right to believe and to feel and to do what we want. You want to be a peacemaker? You want to be about the ministry of reconciliation? Be a peacemaker with the people in your own home and be a peacemaker with the people who you go to church with. I'll tell you, it isn't an easy thing. But Jesus said, blessed are we when we do that. See, the reason that that's such a a challenging thing is because those are the two places that the devil knows we take those relationships so seriously because we expect more from those people. We expect a higher standard from our family and from people at church. And so what we do is when they do something that we don't like and face it, that's what it is, we don't like it, we get offended. And the devil says, you know what, I'm going to use that offense and I'm going to drive a wedge between you and and there's nothing in the world that's going to possibly bring you together, together again. And he convinces you that peacemaking and reconciliation are impossible and forgiveness isn't even going to be an option for you. But you know what, Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave just for the point of the forgiveness of our sins. And that's where the ministry of reconciliation begins. So when's the right time to start? How about right now? See, God sent Jesus to reconcile us to Himself through Jesus. And so what you can't do, well, you can, but I'm going to suggest you don't. Don't sit there and say, that's somebody else's job. Somebody owes me peace. Somebody owes me reconciliation and an apology. That's not what Jesus is saying. When's the time to begin? The time is now, and the job is yours for whomever you feel hurt you. It isn't their job. It is also. But you know what? You can't sit and wait for it. It's not their job to come to you. It's your job to be about the ministry of reconciliation with them. With a husband, with a wife, with a parent, with a child, with a brother, with a sister, with someone within your church, which the Bible talks about as our brothers and sisters. Let's not let Satan destroy those relationships because we believe we've got a right to be offended. Let's be peacemakers and and let's be about the ministry of reconciliation within the Christian church. 
Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've got to be careful about this because whenever somebody says something that we don't like or that offends us, we say, oh, I'm being persecuted, and we think, that's me. No, not necessarily so. But it happens. And we need to understand it because Jesus and those first Christians, the, the first disciples, they understood persecution, folks, in a way few of us have ever or will ever experience as a result of our faith. And we've got to kind of start with that as a standard. The fact of the matter is there are Christians around the world who are experiencing persecution that ends with their martyrdom. Their persecution ends with the loss of their life. That's persecution. Now, you and I, we have people that say things that hurt us and that say things that aren't true. And, and, and yeah, that, that's on a small-scale persecution. But let's realize that Jesus is really talking about something that's even greater than just getting your feelings hurt. Uh, about 20 years ago, I, I met a guy, and uh, he, was, he was a Jewish, Jewish man. It was the first practicing Jewish man that I had ever personally known in my life. And, and we hit it off really well. We got to be friends. We had some great conversations. And I got to learn his story. He was married to a, a, a lady who had, had grown up in Roman Catholic, and they had children together. And they had kind of, they had, with the children, they have learned to just kind of each practice their own faith and everything was fine. But they reached a point where the kids got older, and they started realizing there were some differences in the practice of the faith and even differences of agreement in, in what they actually believed. And so his, his wife began to beg him, would he please begin to come to the Catholic Church with her and would he do that just so that their kids could be raised in one faith? And so as a, as a faithful husband, he starts praying about this. And as a faithful Jewish man, of course, he's, he's praying to God that God would reveal to him what he should do. And, and as a result of those prayers, he came to a saving faith in Jesus. Little did he know what that was going to mean. And here's what happened. He got so on fire about who this Jesus was that he read about in the New Testament of the Bible and, and who he had just had dismissed with everyone he'd ever grown up with when Jesus had ever been brought up. They kind of buried the whole conversation and talked about something else. And now he's on fire because suddenly it answered so many questions. It, 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 it uh, comforted in him these longings that he had that he didn't have an answer for. And what I'm getting at, you can see, is suddenly he's becoming fully satisfied in Jesus. And, and so he explains to his wife this, and uh, he has this new personal faith, and, and he's so excited about it, and he's on fire, and he wants to share with his Jewish friends and, and see what they're missing, and he, and he comes to her and he says, I want to become a pastor because I want to have this opportunity to share with people who know Jesus' name but don't know him personally. Two things end up happening to him. Number one, his wife divorced him. She said, I want to raise the kids in the same faith. I don't want you to become a, a Jesus freak and fall off the deep end and go to the seminary. That's not what I asked for. And the second thing was is that his father gathered up the family and they had what was essentially a funeral for him because he had walked away from the faith. They were very devout and he had walked away from them. And so now he was separated from his family of birth and origin, and he's separated from his family by marriage with children. And he's all alone. And so the question is, what did he do? He went to seminary to become a pastor because Jesus was so real to him that he said, there's all these people out there who don't know. They don't know that they're, that they're really living in sin. And Jesus came that we didn't have to. He dedicated his life to living out the ministry of reconciliation, to being a peacemaker, and I look at what it cost, and I thought, that's persecution. That guy paid a price. And, and I think, you know, it, it sounds like somebody else that we read about. It, it sounds an awful like, like Jesus. Jesus knew persecution 
And this guy knew persecution. And I've since lost touch with him. I, I'd, love to, I'd love to find out how he's doing. I find myself through the years praying for him because he gave up so much because of what he met when he met Jesus. It isn't easy to welcome persecution. Um, the Bible makes it sound like it's a good thing that we should look forward to it, and, and, and it really does in a way. But I do look forward to the kingdom of heaven, and if some persecution and unfair treatment that I have to endure on earth for serving God is part of my journey home, so be it. Um, you're going to be able to understand this next statement. I wish it didn't seem to always come from the mouths of other Christians. And so wherever you are, you can get a nod and give me an amen. Uh-huh. We should be about the ministry of reconciliation. We shouldn't be about persecuting each other. And yet that's what we do. Because somehow it makes us feel better about our little worlds to, to throw stones and to, to, to point faults at other believers. And, and that's not what we're supposed to do. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I struggle with this one because it isn't fun having someone attack you for your faith or for how you're living out the call that God's placed on your life. Sometimes this comes from people in church. Sometimes it comes from people in other churches. Sometimes it comes from family. Sometimes it even comes from pastors. And we've got to accept this one as Christians that we do this to each other and there's no excuse for it. I've had too much experience with people who feel quite free in expressing their feelings to me and simply remaining silent in the face of it isn't easy. But that's what we're called to do by Jesus. That's the example that He showed us. I have heard all manner of evil spoken against other Christians, against men and women that are just doing their very best to do their very best. And what's sad to me is that just like in Jesus' day, it seems that the ones who are most hurtful in the things that they say are the very same ones who call themselves Christians. I've said it before, and you, you probably know something about it yourself. I absolutely love the local church. I love what we're able to do. I, I love what we as a, as a small town church got to be a part of in our communities this week. I love that. I don't think there's anything else on earth that gives us that opportunity. And, and it is the most exciting thing to be a part of. Wherever you're watching, if you're not plugged into a local church congregation, please do yourself the greatest favor ever. Find one that is a Bible-teaching, God-fearing, Jesus-loving local church and just pour yourself into it and get to know Jesus and, and accept that gift of salvation and then become a part of your church because you are what make the church the awesome place and the thing is the only problem that I've ever seen in any church that I've ever been aware of is Christians we're the problem those us we're the ones that the church is made up of and we're the ones that become the problem and that's what these beatitudes are about is saying let's live our lives to a higher standard than that there's people out there right now that are so focused on destroying other Christians and other Christian businesses and, and churches and pastors, they don't even stop to think that what they're really doing is using whatever platform they have to tarnish and to, and to stain not just people, but they're tarnishing and staining and making dirty the bride of Christ. And our job as Christians is to present the bride of Christ, which is His church, pure and faithful and ready on the day that Jesus comes back. And the folks that are doing that, you know what they're really doing? And you know this. You already know this. They're showing their true colors. They're just showing their heart. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be like that. 
The book of Revelation is just abundantly clear in what it says about the accuser of the brethren. So here, here's my word for you. Even if you don't like somebody, if you don't like their church or if you don't like their ministry, find something good to say about them. Even if you don't like it, find something good to say about it. Don't lie. But find something good. Otherwise, take the advice that my mom gave me when I was very young that I've never forgotten for a reason. Shh. Just say nothing. If you can't say something good, shh. Say nothing. Don't get caught up on the wrong side of this one, folks. The truth is, our job as the Christian church is to be and to prepare the bride of Christ to be ready for Jesus when He comes back. If there's anything that I have learned in my 20 years of ministry, it's that the loud, outspoken, critical mouth is the spokespiece for a cold, dark, deceived, arrogant heart. And that's a harsh word, but it's true. And these beatitudes, what Jesus is is getting across to the disciples is that you're about to go out and be a part of that crowd. Those people are not going to treat you well. And you've got to decide who you're going to be when you get there. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you've paid a price for your faith, if other so-called Christians have been loud or brash, or the ungodly rabble of the world have um, bullied you for your faith, and the Bible says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You're in good company. Jesus went through the same thing. And there are Christians and martyrs and disciples throughout history who have gone through the same treatment that you may be going through. Folks, there's this great difference between doing church and being church. Doing church is when you show up once in a while and you learn the language and you talk the talk. Being church is being a disciple of Jesus and living what it is that we learn from the Bible. One is saying that you're a Christian and the other is living as a disciple of Jesus. Imagine how the world would be different if Christians did what we said we believed. If rather than telling people we were going to pray about them, we stopped and prayed for them. Rather than hearing the Beatitudes, we lived the Beatitudes. That's the gap between talking like a Christian and living like a Christian that Jesus is talking to His disciples about. Living like one who has been radically changed by Jesus. I remember the old person, but now I am a new person. And the only reason I've gone from there to here is Jesus. That's your testimony. That's the the two picture testimonies that we talked about. And if you haven't sent one in, please do. To say, Jesus, I have given everything to follow you. That's to be a disciple. Those are the words of a disciple who has been sent across the gap into the crowd, the crowd who thinks that they know, but in fact is still living in darkness. And so I'm going to leave you with this question for the week because next week we're going to pick up where Jesus is more specifically addressing the crowd. Here's my question for you. Which side of that divide are you living on? Are you living on the side of the crowd of people who have not begun to live as a disciple of Jesus? Or are you living on the side of that gap? Are you living on the side of that divide that says, Jesus, you've become real to me. Thank you for your life and death and resurrection. Thank you for my salvation. I believe in you. I trust you. And now I want to live for you. Which Which side of that divide do you live on? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for those disciples, those men that answered the call that Jesus put on their life having no idea what it meant. He said, follow me, and they did. And Peter realized that they gave up everything to follow him. And, and it's, we read them, and they just, we read about them, and they just didn't seem to understand Jesus. But you know what? In the end, they got it. All but one of them. They got what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus.
to come out of the crowd and to cross the gap and to learn from Jesus, to accept the gift that he offers, to become a new creation and then go as a disciple back into the crowd proclaiming the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for anyone and everyone who would believe in God. That is what you've called us to. You have called us to a life not away and separate from the crowd in where we live because we live in and among the crowd, but in how we live, in who we live for. God, help us to be people that keep that straight, that honor You, that love Jesus, and that take joy, that are fully satisfied in being disciples of Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for your continued financial generosity. It has allowed us to continue doing ministry at full capacity. We're reaching more people than we have ever been able to reach before. And in part, that's because you allow the wheels to keep turning in this place and we get to roll forward for the kingdom because you are financially generous. And so thank you. Uh, the slide there shows you how it is that you can contribute to what we're doing. We thank you for that. Uh, finally, here's what's at stake. If you wonder what's at stake, here's what's at stake. Uh, the enemy, the devil, has nothing that he wants, nothing that he wants at all from you, other than for your life to be miserable, to be, to be separated from God, for you to die in your sins, and for you to spend eternity separated from Jesus. Jesus wants you to have life and have it abundantly. You've got to make the decision who you're going to follow and how you're going to live. And so here's what I'm going to leave you with today. I'm going to say be blessed. Be blessed in Jesus, but understand it the way those people did in the first century. Be fully satisfied in your relationship with Jesus. And that can only come when you've accepted Him as your Lord and Savior and you have given up your old life in the crowd and you now live for Him. Be blessed. Have a great week. Thank you for watching.